Welcome back to the Manly Saints Project. By me, Hugh Hunter. We live in a world that struggles to understand the virtues of manliness. Our culture doesn't provide young men, or any men for that matter, with a lot of positive male role models. When I became a Catholic, I wanted to show how the saints could be manly role models for us. My weekly exploration of manly saints became the Manly Saints Project. If you enjoy my work, please consider signing up and supporting me on Substack, or click the links in the show notes to buy me a beer. Now, let's meet this week's Manly Saint. Join me today to meet a saint who understood the dangers of the Enlightenment and took his stand. Name, Niels Stenson, Nicholas Steno, Nicolaus Stenonius, many other variations. Life, 1638 to 1686. Status, Saint, Feast, December 5th. If you had been living in Schwerin, in modern Germany, in the fall of 1686, you might have noticed a strange figure moving about the streets. Stick thin and dressed in clothes that looked like they belonged on a beggar, the man moved around the city with energy. He was often in church, often tending to the needs of the Catholic community. It didn't matter if it was raining or snowing. He traveled in the cheapest way, in an open cart. The man was like a figure out of the Middle Ages. He had once been quite wealthy, but he had given it all away to the poor. He had even sold the ring he received when he was made a bishop. For this man was none other than the one-time celebrity, the anatomist, geologist, philosopher, and apostolic vicar for northern Germany and Scandinavia, Nicholas Steno. Nicholas Steno had been born 48 years earlier in Copenhagen, Denmark. His family was comfortably middle class and comfortably intellectual, with many Lutheran ministers among them. Young Nicholas turned out to be an intelligent boy, and when the time came, he went to study in the university at Copenhagen. At the university, Nicholas discovered the new science, Cartesian science, and he fell in love. The French philosopher and scientist René Descartes had formulated a method of study that we today remember as the scientific method, although the idea no longer implies the hope and optimism of the time. Partly that was because Descartes paired his scientific method with his philosophical approach. He was sure that if you followed it carefully, you would remove any danger of making a mistake. It would be one scientific advance after another. A scientist who followed Descartes' method, a Cartesian scientist, could do anything. Descartes fully expected to live for hundreds of years because he was confident that his science would solve the problem of aging. In time, he was confident that humans would wield the new science to become immortal, rid themselves of sickness and scarcity, and make themselves masters of the physical world. Even though Descartes had died young, many of his Cartesian followers insisted that Descartes' vision might yet come to pass. 
It's no wonder that a smart young man like Nicholas Steno found the idea inspiring. And so, Steno studied and learned. His schooling was a little bit unusual by modern standards, since it was disrupted by the siege of Copenhagen by the army of the King of Sweden. After it was clear a siege would not work, the Swedes launched attacks to try to storm the city. Classes had to be cancelled, so the students could be armed and march out in defense. But Copenhagen survived the assaults, and the students went back to class. Soon, Nicholas was ready for advanced study, and for that, he decided to travel. By this time, Nicholas was sure that he was going to live the life of a scholar. He had been born Niels Stenson, a normal Danish name. Like most scholars of his time, he Latinized his name, translating it into the language that scholars of all Western nations used to communicate with one another. Niels Stenson became Nicolaus Stenonius, and it is this Latinized form of his original name that has come down to us in English as Nicholas Steno. Nicholas Steno traveled to Amsterdam in the Netherlands in search of further education, eager to put Descartes' ideas into practice. He started to succeed. It was in Amsterdam that he made his first scholarly discovery in anatomy, on the function of the parotid duct that brings saliva into the mouth. It was a big discovery for a young man in his early twenties, although with the success came some disillusionment. An established professor in the city, Gerard Blaise, swooped in and tried to take credit for the discovery of the parotid duct. Steno defended himself, writing careful, measured responses to attacks that came from Blaise and his cronies. Finally, Blaise dropped the issue. Steno realized he would be better able to study in Leiden, in the Netherlands. He found the teachers he was looking for there. Steno studied anatomy, working on the brain with Franciscus Silvius. He studied languages with Jacob Golius, an expert in Arabic but also in mathematics, and for a little while Steno thought about becoming a mathematician as well. Steno was learning that he had an unusual mental ability. Where other people tried to address scientific problems one by one, exactly as Descartes had prescribed, Steno found that the more he thought about something, the more he saw the big picture. He would see the problem in context, making connections with other questions. This made it easy for Steno to jump from problem to problem, from area to area. It also made it hard for him to finish projects, because by the time he had reached his conclusions, he already saw how his conclusions connected to something else. Steno could follow arguments wherever they led, almost to a fault. One of the questions that Steno was considering was the question of religion. The Netherlands was a place of religious toleration. Steno waded into debates about religion and found that his Lutheranism did not hold up as well as he had hoped, especially against Catholics. By now he read so many languages that he easily dug into the Greek and Hebrew of the Bible for answers, reading the Church Fathers as well. But Steno's religious explorations went even wider. 
he was also friendly with Baruch Spinoza, the Jewish-born lens grinder who had developed an austere form of rationalist philosophy and a radical, non-denominational form of Protestant Christianity. Nicholas Steno was becoming the kind of thinker who had the courage to follow the truth wherever he thought it was to be found. He also had the courage to call out those who were not so honest. A wealthy man named Ludwig Bills was pushing a clever, scientific scam. Bills was selling an embalming formula that would keep your loved one's body in perfect condition, so he said, forever. There was so much hype around the secret formula that one visitor stuck his finger into a vat of the formula in which there was a body and tasted it. He said it was salty. It seemed to Steno that Ludwig Bills was offering embalming, knowing that by the time a body started to show serious signs of decomposition, he wasn't going to be around to offer a refund. Steno was just a student, but he still went to war, writing pamphlets to expose the fraud. He didn't mind the enemies he was picking up along the way. And so, in 1664, when Steno got the news that his mother was dying in Copenhagen, and he once again traveled north, he had friends, enemies, and a scientific reputation as someone who was not afraid of the truth. As it happened, a professor had died and opened up a vacancy at the University of Copenhagen. Steno's reputation made him the perfect candidate to become a professor, and he might have done so, but then history took a surprise twist. A senior professor managed to get one of his relatives appointed instead. Steno was devastated. Unsure of what to do, he headed south. Steno found that his reputation had grown. He was a minor celebrity as he traveled through the modern Netherlands, Germany, France, and Italy, finally settling in Florence. There he received a generous wage and dug into his research, surrounded by the other intellectuals at the Florentine court. Doctors, designers of fortifications, anatomists, poets, astronomers, theologians, mathematicians, linguists, orientalists. And so it was in 1666, when some fishermen caught a huge shark off the Italian coast, they shipped its head to Nicholas Steno and started him down the road to the defining discovery of his career. Steno dissected the head, but what really stood out for him were the teeth. He had seen them before, or rather, he had seen fossils that were the same shape. The fossils had been dug out of the ground, but no one had a good theory about what they were. And suddenly, Steno's mind made a series of leaps. If there were shark's teeth in the ground, there must have been sharks, and presumably a sea floor at that spot. That must mean the earth is made up of layers, of strata, and these strata must exist in accordance with natural laws. Steno started considering the way that these strata work, and soon he had invented a whole new area of study. Steno's discoveries in geology brought him to the attention of one of the wisest people of his time, Gottfried Wilhelm von Leibniz. There weren't many people who could easily follow Nicholas Steno's mental leaps, 
Leibniz, though, was one of them. If you asked whether Leibniz was an expert, the answer was always yes. He was an expert in every theoretical field in which expertise was a possibility. From math to logic, from philosophy to history, from biology to physics, orientalism to diplomacy to library science, Leibniz understood everything. It wasn't just that Leibniz was smart. Leibniz could see how everything was interconnected. When he was working in logic, he was thinking about how the structures he was finding there were reflected in, say, biology. Leibniz's works were often short, but profound. The fact that he was an expert in everything has slowed down the translation of his work, because to translate it properly, you need to learn so much yourself to see how everything resonates together. Leibniz was impressed by Steno's work, and the two men began to correspond. And so it was to Leibniz, in part, that Steno turned to explain what was troubling him. Steno was famous for his scientific work, but he was worrying about the direction of the new science. He had initially liked Descartes' idea that progress could only run in one direction. If you followed Descartes' method, you would discover truth after truth. Steno's dissections had shown him firsthand that Descartes was wrong about a number of key points, especially related to the functioning of the heart. And he could also see that the Cartesians were just as cliquish and prone to groupthink as the scientists who had come before them. Steno was losing faith in the idea of progress, which suggests that science can only lead in one direction, and that direction is good. Steno lived to see the beginning of the time that, with supreme hubris, called itself the Enlightenment. Enlightenment thinkers would sweep away the traditions and folkways of Europe. They would attack God, king, and country, driving onward toward the Industrial Revolution and the modern world. The promise of Descartes was that progress would be locked onto truth because the scientific method could only increase knowledge. Steno had realized that this was false. What was needed, Steno told Leibniz, was a new kind of scientific humility. Descartes had gotten it almost entirely backwards. The good scientist proceeded slowly, cautiously, recognizing his own faults and fallibility. The good scientist could not make progress without strong faith. As Steno had told an audience in a lecture on anatomy, for this is the purpose of anatomy, to lift the observer from the singularly brilliant construction of the body to the dignity of the soul, and from thence to acquire a knowledge and love for its creator. It wasn't that Leibniz didn't understand the risk as well as the promise of the new science. But Leibniz saw another way to meet the challenge. Where Steno saw something new and uncontrolled, Leibniz could still make out the outline of the perennial philosophy, the constant theme that has been in human thought from Pythagoras to Plato, from Aristotle to Aquinas. Leibniz's life work was, in a way, to bring out this continuity 
to show the Enlightenment that it did not need to be an opponent of Christendom. It could be an extension of Christendom. Steno, though, came to think that the certainty he did not find in the Cartesian new science was perhaps found elsewhere. He kept thinking about Catholicism. His doubts came to a head when he was watching the procession go by for Corpus Christi. Was this thing being held up by the priest really, literally, the body of Christ, the body of the God who made the stars? And if so, wasn't that truth more important than almost anything else? The more Steno thought about it, the more he thought the answer was yes. In 1667, he became a Catholic. And then Steno shocked the world of scholars by becoming a priest, then a bishop, and leaving scholarship behind in his pursuit of that vocation. Steno and Leibniz drifted apart. Leibniz is often quoted as having called Steno a mediocre theologian. But he also paid Steno a high compliment, writing him into a philosophical dialogue where the figure representing Leibniz says the things he perhaps wished he had said in their last conversation. Steno's duties took him to northern Germany and Scandinavia. He threw himself into this appointment completely, fasting regularly, taking on more services than a bishop needed to, becoming a skillful evangelist. He had been comfortable. Now, Steno sold everything to have money to help the poor under his charge. It was a lonely life. He moved through northern Europe, admired by some, hated by others, going from city to city. People who saw him were amazed at how frail he had become. The work was consuming him. In 1685, he arrived in Schwerin. It was going to be his last stop. By the time Steno died at 48, many of his former colleagues dismissed him as someone who had tossed away a promising career to become a religious hardliner. They thought he had missed the point of the new science completely. By the time Steno had sent his old friend Spinoza a letter warning of the dangers of his philosophy, Spinoza hadn't even bothered to reply. Steno had always pursued the truth, a manly thing to do. But Nicholas Steno is a manly saint because, when he felt the call to follow the truth down the loneliest path, to sacrifice his friendships and his wealth and even his health, Steno followed without hesitation. For us, centuries later, Steno's worries about the new science do not seem so unreasonable. It is the new science which now seems naive. Steno and Leibniz were right about what was coming. The Enlightenment would wash over Europe like a tidal wave, and when it had passed, Christendom would be all but gone. The world that would emerge would be different. It was not a better world. Steno's doubts about the new science turned out to be well-founded. That much was obvious by the time St. Nicholas Steno was canonized by Pope St. John Paul II in 1988. Leibniz's plan 
was to grab hold of the Enlightenment and reshape it to become something better. Unfortunately, that task proved too great for one man, even a man like Leibniz. Nicholas Steno's approach was simpler and more pragmatic. He decided to take the side of tradition and the church. But did that mean giving up on the new science? Not the way Steno saw it. Science had only ever been a window into something grander. As Steno said during his lecture on anatomy, That which we see is beautiful. That which we understand is even more beautiful. But the most beautiful thing of all is that which we cannot grasp. Let us not, therefore, be satisfied with the evidence of our senses, but through our bodily eyes, use our mind's eyes, as if they were windows in a glorious palace, surrounded by a beautiful landscape. Let us see what surroundings, what flowers, what elements and miracles are to be found. (laughs) 